Uh, nothing is worse than viral workplace chat. It might be the worst. <laughs> Everyone who uses Slack is a Nazi. And you're like, what? No. Oh, my God. Nothing's more important than a great customer experience, but sometimes services get disrupted. X Matters helps teams resolve issues fast before they impact customers. Learn why millions trust X Matters to keep their digital services up and running at xmatters.com slash stack. Good morning, everybody. Hey, good, good morning. morning. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Paul, Sarah, I had a question for you that I thought might introduce some good engineering stories from your, your time. I was reading a little thing today. The question was, why are there 5,280 feet in a mile, which does seem rather arbitrary. Can I guess? Yes, please. Oh, miles are American. My initial thing was going to be like, it was that many miles from like a church to a guy's right. house. Well, they're not right. American. They're, they were originally, I think, British. Okay, then I, then that's still my guess. Now they're metric, yeah, right? Yeah. Like over there. It's like us and, and like one really, some yeah. other country and, and that's it. There's not much. So the, the Romans did it logically. There was a thousand paces or 5,000 feet in a mile. It's like a thousand paces, one mile. This is like a nice number you can work with. But then Queen Elizabeth made it 5,280 because that divides perfectly into a rectangle, 660 feet long and 66 feet wide, which you can divide eight ways into a square mile, which fits exactly with 640 acres or a section. So it goes backwards from like, oh, we do everything in acres. Acres are this. Now we want to split up. I want to give you a quarter of an acre and you a quarter of this lot. So we just got to, well, let's just tweak the, let's tweak a mile a little bit. We'll make it uh, a few more feet. So yeah, I mean, the queen was doing her best to make things simple. She's constantly giving away lands to favored patrons and she wants to divide it into acres and hectares and all these things. And so it made sense to have it all even out. Just, you know, tack an extra 280 feet on that mile. And we've been stuck with this 280 extra feet ever since, which makes everything else very confusing. Listen, Popper, you, you just sprung up with this. And this this is like, hey, put Sarah and Paul on the, on the spot. But Sarah, you and I <laughs> have this because that is a perfect example of a standardization effort that everyone has to live with for like the yeah, rest of their like life. Yeah, like making it backwards compatible. Yeah. And then so, or also yeah. just like they spent all that time getting the standard just right, you know, anticipating every possible reason it should be exactly like this. They were solving the wrong problem. It took until kilometers, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the foot is literally some guy's foot. Yeah, that's just like a king's foot or something it's like, like that. Just some guy. Although now I'm worried that you said that. That's the sort of thing that like 5,000 feet <laughs> threads are, well, actually, not a foot. It was, it was, it was his dog's foot and plus his wife's his concubine's foot. <laughs> so anyway, regardless, it's all very arbitrary, right? And this is actually like, for instance, the web shows up. It was all about documents. XML standardization was this big thing. Like Microsoft went to war with the rest of the world as to like what the right way to get office style documents syndicated in XML would be, right? Then they show up, they, meaning nerds, show up and they're like, actually, we'll just use JavaScript. And JSON just took over the world. There was like, no, people just make fun of XML now. Yeah. When you think about, someone was talking about SOAP and REST the mm -hmm. other day and I was like, I have to remind myself. And then I remembered that SOAP is just XML. Is anyone doing that? I mean, let's do a quick history lesson, which was that 
in the 90s, object-oriented programming was going to be everything. And it's one of those things where everybody's like, well, it didn't really work out that way. Java, blah, blah, blah. But it did. Like, we actually kind of use a yeah, lot. Yeah, we still use it everywhere. We use a yeah. lot of objects. So the original object fantasy was that, like, objects just receive messages. Doesn't matter where they come from. Could come over the network. Could come from inside the computer. They're just like little mailboxes. Everybody relax. Smoke a bowl. Everybody's cool. <laughs> and so then there were all these formats like Corba, which it's like Cobra, but it's spelled wrong. And it stands for the common object request broker architecture, I think. And that was like, wow. yeah. And then there were others like commercial ones like TIB. So the idea was like, I'll be able to serialize and send object requests over the network or serialize them to the database. Well, obviously you want to do that, except that it turns out when you do all this, you end up with all this overhead and, and sometimes it's easier just to use SQL. I mean, object relational mapping is still a huge part of our life, like active record and rails. It is. So, I mean, getting back to it, you know, this is all on fire in the early 2000s and IBM and others got together and were like, you know, we need to make the, it was like the web services dash asterisk, you know, all these different standards because XML is the new thing that everybody wants to use, which is like the enterprise version of HTML. They went whole hog and they published all these standards because IBM is really good at publishing standards. And in fact, they were where SGML <laughs> was born. They have a big team, big team dedicated to that. <laughs> Vast, actually. No, no. I mean, they, they were where SGML <laughs> was born, which was the place that, H, you know, th that was the format and structure that HTML came out of. That was a standard that yielded other standards. So they were like, we, we're going to get in here and own this. And it's just this huge hairball mess that's impossible to comprehend. And then you look at JSON. And you go like, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, uh. I can work with that. Yeah. It's fine. just keys and values. Like if you know the syntax of a little bit of JavaScript, you already know JSON. Yeah. Whereas with SOAP, it was like, read this 600-page document. And whoa, what a shocker. <laughs> Didn't work <laughs> Nobody out. wanted that, right? But yeah. it does still exist. We recently at work, no, actually not recently, a couple years ago, somebody showed up with a giant SOAP API for an email platform and was like, we need to build a client to talk to this. We want a new email client. Oh, don't touch the API. You need to build, need to build the client. It was all SOAP. So what our team did was build a in-browser GraphQL layer so that you could issue GraphQL queries from the client, and then they would go to a proxy that would translate them to SOAP queries so, so that everybody could use the syntax they were comfortable with. <laughs> what an amazing thing. What a way to make it work for people who are like, this is absolute garbage and we're going to have to Paul always wants to make everyone feel comfortable. Yeah. That should be Postlight's like mantra, <laughs> making everyone feel comfortable with their tech stack. You know, developer experience is a big part of life. And so it is. But, exactly. but bring exactly. that bring that all the way back like computer standards, feet, miles, time and so on. You're always reducing things to integers which are themselves little light switches turning off inside the computer. So we're always yeah. wrestling with that. Like time is a great example. Like time is muddy and real and you and you need these giant time zones documents. Yeah, god, it's awful. And the same with distance, same with everything. There was another great quote that popped up in my feed which I thought about a lot over the weekend. It says in metric, one millimeter of water occupies one cubic centimeter, weighs one gram, and requires one calorie of energy to heat up by one degree centigrade, which is 1% of the difference between its freezing point and its boiling point. I know. It's so How awesome. How much energy did it take to boil a room temperature gallon of water, you can say, to an American? To which the answer is, go f*** 
yourself because you can't directly relate <laughs> any of those quantities I just discussed. That's one <laughs> of my favorite thought, things like, about yeah. Celsius is like I just remember because like we don't use that Fahrenheit here. And so I but whenever I'm translating, I'm like, OK, 100 degrees is boiling. So I just have to like yeah. move backwards. Well, I mean, that seventh yeah. grade science class is when they blew your mind with that. Right. And is yeah. that in yeah. like I remember more from middle school science than almost anything else because it was stuff like Epsom salts makes water different. And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, wow. I'm I'm blooming yeah. as a human. The science is magic portion of your education. But like, yeah, like you're saying, Paul, like, and what's interesting about this one is like space and energy and time are all logically connected in that one little system there. I mean, like then people immediately start arguing in the comments, well, a calorie is really measured in a joule. And so that blah, blah, blah. But it's you know like, what that is? So that's good API design. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like that's actual good. Yeah. You aspire to that. And people don't think that way. Yeah. They're just like, oh man, I got to get this data in. I got to get this data out. And like scientists probably, you know, maybe it's Kelvin. I don't know who the hell it was. Some, but because it doesn't matter <laughs> is all you need to know. You don't even need, it's not named Jim Celsius. It's not, but no, we were named Fahrenheit. Of course, we got the guy's name and a king's foot and a bunch of acres and hectares. Celsius, they're like, no, nah, man, all you need are the API docs. You want to heat up some water? Don't worry. Don't worry. It's really easy. Just send one calorie to the milliliter and, and you got it. Yeah. And you're like, wow. Exactly. The most beautiful languages or libraries or frameworks or any of the things. And you're like, I don't know what the syntax is, but it should work like this. And you try it and you're like, yeah. That was a conversion. <laughs> that was my conversion experience with Python. Hey, that does not happen with JavaScript ever. <laughs> yeah. I guess I love JavaScript. With some JavaScript libraries, maybe. Uh, jQuery, it does. JQuery, yeah, but we're not allowed. You know, jQuery's not cool anymore. Yeah, it's not cool. No, Python's really good at that. You know what I wonder, and this is just crazy guessing, but like if you look at the syntaxes of very science-friendly languages, I'll bet they have that pretty locked down. Like if you think about Fortran is hideous and it's not good for modular programming, but it does let you express those simple scientific concepts really efficiently and you kind of give them big bulky names. Python's that way. Scientists love Python. You know, speaking of learning things, I found a great resource this week that maybe everyone already knows about. Okay. Because this week I learned about micro front ends. Oh, no. Did you already know no, about this? No, tell us all about it. So micro front ends is kind of like microservices in the way that you componentize sections of your front end. And instead of having front end engineers that work cross-platform, you know, on random areas of your application, um, you do things. I know that places like big places like Twitter and Facebook have been doing it a long time. Like you have a whole team dedicated to your editor. Or you have right, like a whole team right. dedicated to XYZ so that they become experts in this and you still have components and things still affect other things, but you, you get an expertise there. So I learned about that this weekend from the ThoughtWorks technology radar. Do you know about this? Okay, so I did not know about this specific thing, but I'm a big fan of the ThoughtWorks technology radar. That's like a great consulting yeah. product. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great. I didn't know about it. And so now I'm going to check it out like every so often. But what they do is they break down different trends and tell you, this is a great thing for managers too, who are like not really deep in the tech mm -hmm. all the time to learn about the things that are up and coming. And exciting, so we, we should give them the pitch because it is a good resource and, you know, they give it away for free for their marketing. ThoughtWorks is a big 
technology development firm that works with large clients to build large systems. They are a software consultancy mm. and they're kind of on the cooler side, right? Like there's someone as a, yeah. as a firm that provides software and services, we're much, much smaller than them, but I definitely pay attention to them as like, oh, okay. They used to be very object oriented. I think they're, they're broader now, but like, and I want you to talk about micro frameworks because I don't, I don't have a thought, but like the radar tends to tell you like, hey, should I adopt this? Should I be looking at it? Should I ignore it? Should I know what this is? Yeah. And so, right. It's like a trend. It's like a cool hunting for, for software. They're like telling you what's up and coming, what you should know, what it means if somebody says it. For enterprise. So like, <laughs> so no, no. I mean, a good example yeah. is like, okay, adopt.net core, right? And then it's like assess Apache Pulsar. I mean, there are so many Apache projects. It's so exciting. And then it tells you what they are. So Pulsar is an open source pub sub messaging streaming platform, but you never have any idea about half of the things and they are kind of real. So it's, it's, it's actually helpful. That's what I loved about it. I just like got really deep on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I think the microfinance thing is, is really great. It's the same reason why you do microservices is because you kind of end up with a monolith on your front end. We kind of saw this when we were doing dark mode where, you know, like you change one thing about one page and it's going to break a whole bunch of other things. So making everything kind of autonomous and decoupled, it's a great way to make sure that you can do upgrades. Like, I guess in this case, you'd probably have like a design systems team that would govern the entire front end or like the entire design. And then you'd have different teams, autonomous teams that would own different components. I read something the other day that was kind of like the opposite of this, where you're talking about like, oh, you have a monolith and you want to protect it by atomizing it and like breaking it down. It was saying that in certain places where like they put so much time and energy and effort into getting their system just right on the hardware end, they then cut it off from the network and just refuse to update. So it's like movie studios where they've like fine-tuned everything to do some kind of film editing or CGI or like music studios where they like have this huge interconnected rig of all these different machines. And then it's like they're running a version of Windows or, you know, whatever the music program is that's like six or seven versions old, but it works for them. It never same breaks. Same with government, same with... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought that was really interesting. Freeze it in time. It works. It won't break. Freeze it in time. All it needs <laughs> to do is when you touch the slider, it needs to make it louder, right? right? And so it's like, don't screw with that unless you have to. And, and the price of... Yeah. Updating the Windows 10 could be like $12 million. <laughs> so don't, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why the New Jersey unemployment system runs on COBOL. Uh, well, this oh, is the right. thing. Yes, is if, exactly. It always catches up with you eventually, right? So you, you seem to right. have two choices in life, which is update constantly and perpetually and deal with the consequences or defer the consequences and pay a terrible price later. Right. When that black swan comes along. Yeah, absolutely. As that far as I can tell, there's sense. there's no winning. The best thing is to stay continually <laughs> updated. There's no winning. Sarah, you dropped a link in here that I thought was interesting because we've discussed this before. It says here, Pinterest pays 90 million bucks, give or take, to terminate San Francisco office lease. Sarah, we had an episode a couple weeks back where we talked about you were hearing just anecdotally from friends, there's been a real exodus of software developers out of San Francisco and the Bay Area. You know, I think the question of the time was, how big of a trend is this going to be? How long lasting? And would this eventually maybe shift the center of gravity for software development and product expertise away from San Francisco where, you know, it's been for so long? So any thoughts on this? Is this more than just a one-off with Pinterest? Is this happening at a bigger scale? I mean, I think so. Paul, I'd be interested to hear what you've seen, but 
everyone I know right now, or like most places, I know at Stack 2, we're out until next June. And I think that people are really considering this. I think people are seeing that their employees and teams can be super productive remotely. I think we've learned the lesson that remote is possible. I think what I would say is complicated here is that when you're looking at San Francisco companies and you're looking at companies like Stack, you're looking at places that deliver essentially a monolithic or a couple monolithic products. And I'm not using that in the, in the term of monolith. Like you do a big thing and you work together mm-hmm. in groups that are all focused on that big thing, the access points to the outside world already are online. So like a client services company, a not even mine, but like a Deloitte or a McKinsey or somebody like that, like, you know, or who are actually some of the largest IT services providers around. You just don't think about them because you think of them as consulting and accounting. They still kind of got to get in that office and talk to people. When you're dealing right. with in a lot of spongy ways with the outside world, and sales often is pretty physical and, and sort of requires a lot of interchange and a lot of whiteboarding and so on. When you're dealing with individuals meeting each other for the first time and trying to accomplish a shared goal together for their on behalf of both of their organizations, it's hard to see that going fully remote anytime soon because it's just a lot of signal and interchange and ritual and tradition. But Pinterest is building Pinterest, right? And they already know how to build Pinterest every day. So they can restructure around a remote organization without losing sight of what that is. Because that social interaction isn't key. Like if everybody didn't work for a day, for the most part, Pinterest would probably stay up. So I think that's, to me, that's the metric. If If everybody went home for a day, what would happen? I like what you're saying, Paul, where it's like, if you're having to constantly meet new clients and solve their individualized demands, whereas like, right, you're going project by project and what you're trying to solve for and the technologies you need to use to do it are constantly changing. It probably makes a lot more sense to have more of that FaceTime, you know, to be in the room with the client, to have that whiteboard. Whereas, right, you're building a big system that's already up and running and you just want to keep optimizing it and bolt on a feature here or there, you know, remote probably works really well. Also, you know, the the thing about it is like once you start a trend, this trend now for tech companies runs at least till next summer. It's hard to reverse it. Like if once everybody moves out, it's going to be hard to coach yeah, them to come back. Yeah, these are big battleships. And you've saved all this money on the office and on no snacks. And you're suddenly thinking like, wow, my margins look great. You know, like turning back the clock on this is going to be pretty hard, I think, even if we realize at the end, oh, we, we liked offices. Damn, we want that at back. At the same time, like, Office rates in New York City remain pretty high. Like people aren't, a lot of people are like hurting. And so they're letting their leases go. But like Facebook and Amazon are expanding in Manhattan right now. They're getting new space. Right, right. new. And you think about it, right? That may not even be engineering. Like they may, and I'm sure Google is always looking for new space, right? It might not be engineering. Engineering can stay home, but the ad sales teams, yeah. you know, there's, there's all this stuff that happens that has a really deep culture of physical contact or might actually involve yeah. goods being exchanged. But no, if you're working on a big old thing and you kind of know what you're doing this year and your job doesn't change that much, right. this is now an option. I mean, if you think about it from a raw, raw capitalist point of view, a company is looking at not paying that rent, but still getting the same, roughly the same productivity from its human beings. So what are they going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, what is your, what is your gut feeling? Are you going to just going to stay in New York River because you're a New Yorker? Do you love the city? Or you, do you have now maybe an inkling that like, oh, I could use some more space or something else? Yeah, I, we love the city. I think we're going to head out this winter for a bit, but mm-hmm. like city people are city people. This is what yeah. we've decided. Like city, if you love the city, you always love the city. You know, like it's, I think it's a different world to move out, but I get why people are leaving. 
I also wonder, like we've been talking about doing our offsites, you know, and maybe doing them a little bit more often if we don't have an office. And so there could be this kind of new work culture where it's like everybody works remote, but once or a month or once a quarter, you all meet up in person and kind of go through that, either the ritual stuff or, you know, good bonding that happens face to face, or you work on the problems that are better done that way. And then everybody disperses again. So it's kind of like this flex arrangement. And then I could also see, Paul, like you're saying, like a lot of people forget, like we own this build. This is the Pinterest building or the Twitter building, but you have a flex space where it's like, hey, if you ever want to come into the city and work, you know, we've got this sort of set up. Look, I think it's changing, right? Like I know at work, we used to be engineering has always been remote at Postlight and then design and product were always in the city at headquarters, essentially. And we have made product management hires that are remote and we're considering them more aggressively now. And people are saying, Hey, I I think I'm going to move back to this city instead of staying here. And we're like, okay, you know, like, like this has been such a transformative year. So I think that what you're going to see on the other side of this is obviously we've learned from this. I hope to God we've learned from this and you're going to just see a lot of new patterns. I think what drives me bananas, and this is because I spend too much time on Twitter, is that there's an absolutist attitude like, well, remote's the best way ever. It's the only way to work. Everyone who's ever talked about an office has lied. An open office is evil. Let me get that in there too. <laughs> and like, okay. At the same time, then you have people who are like, remote work can't, isn't real work. It's, they're not here. I can't see them. I don't know what they're doing. And then the remote people are like, well, nah, it's just, you're just trying to control me. And it's just kind of this endless circle. Sometimes it's good when people are together. Often it's not that big a deal. Um, <laughs> Is the tickle? Yeah, I, I'm just like for well, God's that's sake. That's a viral tweet right there. That was a hot tweet. People no, exactly. It's up. the opposite <laughs> of a hot tweet, right? Like it, it's just avoid all professional advice <laughs> and office and management strategies presented on Twitter. Just trust me. Oh well, it says I have to do this. No. No, you don't. Says this is evil. I I trust trending topics. I trust them. So we're going to see. I think, look, if if you didn't learn from this pandemic, you're an idiot. Right. That, that's about it. Right. <laughs> that's a good. Yeah. Tweet. Like you didn't learn X from this. pandemic. Yeah, I mean, if it if it works and somebody's happier and they're productive, that's right. I mean, what this means is a lot of awkward stuff like layoffs over Zoom. And, you know, and just like there's there's a lot coming along whoosh, those paths. Whoosh, yeah. Whoosh, yeah. 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 All right, y'all, it's that time of the week. I will read a lifeboat and we will say our goodbyes. I love it. All right. The question is, why is Angular called a single page application? One of the most common terms associated with AngularJS is s.p.a. And then there's a bunch of sort of sub questions in here. Why is it called that? Even if the URL changes, will it still be called an SPA? Are all the sites created by it uh, really a single page application? And then we have a really nice answer in here, breaking down all of this stuff the advantages of an SPA, why Angular is called that. So big shout out to Sravya Nagumali for that lifeboat. If either of you want to weigh in, feel free here. I can uh, share the link. Ben Butcher's names is perhaps my favorite part of this. Like this is. <laughs> yeah, we should do a segment. Yeah, just just a, a super cut of like, oh, no, that ben, one was awkward. Yeah. That was not. Mm. Are we talking about people's names or software names? Because I think I do both. 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 Effectively. Both. Yeah. Ben, it, ben learning it. language. No, I. What's better than, uh, yeah, that's just, they just said it all. It's just, it's. it's oh, this is a great little write up. Yeah. yeah. Single page yeah. applications, man. It's yeah. how they ruined the web. It's wonderful. Underrated. Yep. No page flicker, native application feel. Mm-hmm. Mm, love it. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're listening, we appreciate you. Send us any ideas or comments. Podcast at Stack Overflow. I'm Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper.
And I'm Sarah Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on GitHub at Sarah Joe. And I'm Paul Ford, friend of Stack Overflow. Check out my company, postlight.com.